0: <laughs>
1: welcome, welcome to the third <coughs> in uh, our lecture series on Islam, terrorism, and uh, democracy, co-sponsored by the Mershan Center, the Honors and Scholars Program, the Political Science Department, and the Middle East uh, Studies Center. Our speaker today is uh, Carrie Rozewski wickham uh, who's going to speak on Islamist auto-reform, lessons from Egypt, uh, Jordan, and Kuwait. Uh, Carrie Wickham received her bachelor's degree from uh, Harvard and her PhD from Princeton. Uh, She's associate professor of political science at Emory University, where she teaches courses on political Islam, social movements, and democratization. Uh, Last year, Uh, Professor Wickham received an Emory Williams Award for Distinguished Teaching, the university's highest award for excellence in teaching. So that means, of course, that we're going to get a great presentation. (laughs) Sets up expectations, doesn't it? Um, Professor Wickham's research analyzes the origins and evolution of social movements and political protest in developing countries with a regional focus on the Middle East. She's the author of Mobilizing Islam, Religion, Activism, and Political Change in Egypt, Columbia University Press. <clears throat> and uh, this is uh, that book, uh, which is uh, soon to be out in the third edition paperback. Um, and uh, I thought I would quote from the comments of our first speaker, uh, John Anteles, who was here just last week uh, on the back cover of the book. And uh, John Antelis, uh, who we all believe, right, because he gave such a good talk here last week, said, Uh, Never have people more needed a rational, comprehensive, detailed, and empathetic accounting of the Islamist phenomenon as now. Both general readers and area specialists, therefore, will be well informed by this brilliant accounting of political Islam's organization, operation, and motivation in modern Egypt as presented by one of America's leading scholars on the subject. Um, Carrie's current research uh, is on the reform of Islamist goals and strategies in the Arab world. She conducted fieldwork for the project in Egypt, Jordan, and Kuwait in 2004 and has extended the project to Morocco and uh, Tunisia this year. Her presentation today is based upon
2: that fieldwork. Carrie. I want to start by thanking the Little for inviting me to come speak to you today and also for his very generous introduction. I hope I I can live up to that billing. And also to thank all of you for coming out um, to uh, hear my talk today, and I look forward to a lively question and answer session to follow my remarks. Islamist groups constitute the largest, best organized, and most popular sector of the political opposition in most Arab states today. Hence, any efforts to promote democracy and stability in the region require attention to whether and how Islamist groups can be included in the process of democratic change. A central question this brings up, I would argue, is whether participation breeds moderation. That is, whether the representation of Islamist groups in elected bodies such as Arab parliaments and professional associations will lead them to reconcile their goals with the principles of democratic politics. But as important as this question is, we have yet to develop a good set of explanatory theories about the participation-moderation linkage due to the persistence of at least three major conceptual problems. First, while the term moderation is generally equated with growing support for democracy, much of the literature fails to acknowledge the possibility that Islamist opposition leaders might come to embrace certain aspects of democracy while continuing to reject others. A second and related problem is the tendency of some scholars to treat Islamist opposition groups, or even more egregiously, the entire movement of revivalist Islam in which they are embedded, as monolithic entities supportive of a single interpretation of Islam and committed to a single set of political objectives. Yet as I observed in my research in Egypt, Jordan, and Kuwait last year, Islamist opposition groups encompass different and even conflicting sectors of opinion, not only in strategic matters, but also in the definition of end goals. For example, the leaders of Islamist groups in all three countries are committed to the establishment of a political system based on Islamic law, or Sharia, but they differ among themselves on the question of how much of the historical Sharia, that is the corpus of traditional Islamic legal rulings inherited from the past, can and should be revised. But at this juncture, our understanding of these inter-movement debates and of how they are shaped both by the external policy environment and by internal struggles for power remains rudimentary at best. A third problem in the literature on Islamist groups is that the causal relationship between participation and moderation remains underspecified. Is moderation simply a strategic response by Islamist leaders to changing political opportunities and constraints? Or does it reflect a deeper change in their core values and beliefs? And if Islamist moderation is in fact driven, at least in part, by a deeper process of what we might call democratic learning, what types of participation are likely to trigger it, and why are some Islamist leaders more predisposed to it than others? Today, let me propose a more differentiated picture of the scope and limits of Islamist moderation based on my recent work in the field funded by grants from the Carnegie Corporation of New York and the U.S. Institute of Peace, I launched a new research project last year on the causes and dynamics of a new trend I refer to as Islamist auto reform. Auto reform is defined here as the call for change in a movement's goals and strategies by members of the movement itself. As applied to contemporary Islamist groups in the Arab world, I focus on calls for reform based on new interpretations of Islam which to varying degrees privilege ideas of procedural democracy, pluralism, and citizenship rights within a religious framework. Last spring and summer, I conducted research on calls for reform emanating from within the main nonviolent political organizations of revivalist Sunni Islam in three Arab states the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, the Islamic Action Front, or IAF, in Jordan, and the Islamic Constitutional Movement, or ICM, in Kuwait. In addition, I looked closely at two new party initiatives, the Wasat, or Center Party in Egypt, and the Islamic Wasat, or Center Party in Jordan, which were formed by Islamist leaders who broke away from the Brotherhood and IAF, respectively, and also encompass Islamist independence. Later this year, I will extend the project to Islamist opposition groups in Morocco and Tunisia, and I will include the Justice and Development Party in Turkey as an external comparison case. The questions which animate my research are the following. Who are the main advocates of Islamist auto-reform? How and why has their understanding of Islam changed over time? And what conditions have shaped the reception of their message within mainstream Islamist opposition groups in the Arab world today? Given that I'm only midway through the data collection phase of this project, I will address these questions today with specific reference to the cases of Egypt, Jordan, and Kuwait. Let me begin with a brief review of the legacy of the revivalist Islamic movement to which current reform efforts are directed. The main nonviolent Islamist political organizations in Egypt, Jordan, and Kuwait today share a common heritage. All of them have their roots in the Society of Muslim Brotherhood, the Society of Muslim Brothers, or Ikhwan al-Muslimin, founded by Hassan al-Banna in Egypt in 1928, with the goal of restoring Islam to its rightful role as both a guide to private faith and conduct and a set of principles for regulating the affairs of society and state. As part of the broader movement of revivalist Islam, the Egyptian Brotherhood and its local affiliates in Jordan and Kuwait adhered to the idea that Islam Deen Wadawla, that is, Islam is both religion and state, and stressed that an Islamic political order or Islami, was both intrinsically different from and superior to the systems of democracy and socialism which prevailed in the West because it was oriented not to the fulfillment of human whims and desires but to the realization of God's will. <coughs> Though the leaders of the revivalist movement never established a clear blueprint for the Islamic State they sought to accomplish, they nevertheless made clear that what distinguished it from other systems was the application of Sharia, or Islamic law. Though rather loosely defined, the goal of the revivalist movement was thus to hasten the establishment of a comprehensive Islamic system in which God's plan for humankind, revealed in the Quran and the Hadith and codified over the centuries in the corpus of Islamic jurisprudence, was put in practice. For Islamic revivalists, if traditional Sharia rulings violated democratic norms, the problem lay not with the Sharia, but with the flawed foundations of democracy itself including its excessive emphasis on individual freedom over the protection of the Muslim community's core institutions and values. A second dimension of the revivalist movement was the priority it gave to mobilization outside the sphere of formal politics. Historically, Islamist groups in Egypt, Jordan, and Kuwait, and elsewhere, have concentrated most of their activity in the domain of social services, education, and dawah, or religious outreach, rather than participation in contests for political power. Through outreach at the universities and in neighborhood mosques and schools, revivalist leaders sought to build a mass constituency, paving the way for the eventual establishment of an Islamic State supported by a large majority of their fellow citizens. So what aspects of this legacy do auto reformers within the Islamic movement today seek to revise? And on what grounds do they justify change in the movement's historic mission? Based on my interviews with party leaders, analysis of party documents, interviews with secular political activists and researchers, and my review of articles in the Arab press, I contend that the reformist or Islahi trend within the non-violent mainstream of the revivalist Islamic movement has three central components. First, a call for ongoing participation in the formal political systems of Arab states, even when these systems fall short of Islamic ideals. Second, a call for greater transparency and internal democracy within Islamist political groups, as well as greater cooperation with secular parties in pursuit of shared goals. And third, a call for change in the end goals of the Islamic movement, including calls for a revision of historic conceptions of Sharia rule. But the reality is in fact more complex, since leaders who favor reform vary in the extent of their commitment to change along these three dimensions. While a near consensus has been reached on the value of participation in democratic elections the question of how much and what type of organizational and ideological reforms should accompany it remain a subject of heated internal debate The most widely accepted component of auto reform is the idea that Islamist groups should seize the opportunity to participate in electoral politics as a strategy independent of but complementary to the movement's traditional social service and, out, and religious outreach activities. To a large extent, this new tactical emphasis on participation was a way for Islamist opposition groups to exploit the more liberal political climate in their countries in the 1980s and 1990s to their own advantage. Though the Brotherhood technically remains banned in Egypt, in 1984 it began to run candidates for the parliament. As in other Arab states, Egypt's parliament has historically been dominated by politicians close to the government who offer citizens benefits and services in exchange for their votes. The tendency of Egyptian voters to choose government-backed candidates in the hope of better services makes it virtually impossible for any opposition party, no matter how popular, to challenge the ruling party's majority in parliament. But at least compared with secular opposition parties, the Brotherhood has performed very well. For example, in the country's last parliamentary elections, which were held in November 2000, despite the harassment of Brotherhood candidates and their supporters by security agents at various polling stations, the Brotherhood won 17 seats, equal to the number won by all the country's legal opposition parties combined. Likewise, the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan took advantage of a more open political environment in the early 1990s and set up the Islamic Action Front the jabha al-Amal al-Islami or by the acronym IAF, which as a legal party could advance the movement's goals through direct political action. Currently, the IAF holds 17 of 104 seats in parliament, but its influence is greater than these numbers suggest because it can count on the support of conservative MPs from tribal areas to join them in defense of the country's, quote, Arab Islamic heritage. Similarly, in Kuwait, the Islamic Constitutional Movement, or ICM, was founded in 1991 after the country's liberation from Iraq to represent the Brotherhood current in Parliament. In the last election in 2003, it won only three seats, down from five in 1999, but it forms part of a wider Islamist bloc, which together represents 17, or roughly a third, of the seats in total. And, as in Jordan, members of the Islamist opposition in Kuwait Can typically count on the backing of conservative tribal MPs on issues of public morals, such as during their successful 1996 campaign for a law mandating the gender segregation of Kuwait University. Not only do Islamist opposition groups regularly and enthusiastically participate in parliamentary elections in all three Arab states, but Islamist leaders are further at the forefront of calls for an end to all forms of government intervention so that elections can be as free and fair as possible. Islamist leaders' vocal support for procedural democracy, that is, the use of free and competitive elections to select a country's leaders, should come as no surprise. In interviews with such leaders last spring and summer, all of them expressed the confidence that truly free elections would enable them to obtain a far greater share of seats in parliament than is possible under existing laws which were against them and quite possibly enable them to gain an outright majority. As Islamist leaders put it, this is because their platforms harmonize best with the values of most people in society, as well as, to cite Sheikh Hamza Mansour, Secretary General of Jordan's IAF, with the innate desires of human nature itself. Are these self-confident predictions justified? No one knows how many votes the Islamists would gain if Arab voters could choose from a wide range of well-organized parties, including secular democratic ones, which were free to publicize their ideas and reach out directly to the mass public. But the fact remains that in the authoritarian environments of most Arab states today, secular parties are at a distinct disadvantage, in part because they lack anything equivalent to the vast network of mosques through which Islamists can mobilize support. Given that their organizational networks and mass base far exceed that of any secular opposition group, Islamist leaders know that they would be the first to benefit from an expansion of democratic freedoms, at least in the short term. The results of the January elections in Iraq, in which the United Iraqi Alliance, a list dominated by Shiite religious parties, outperformed its secular rivals by a wide margin, highlights this advantage (sighs) well. The upshot of all this is that it's no coincidence that Islamist leaders are some of the most outspoken advocates of democratic elections in the Arab world. I'm not suggesting that the commitment of Islamist leaders to procedural democracy is insincere, but rather that it largely accords with their own group interests. At the same time, however, I found that leaders of the Brotherhood, IAF, and ICM have begun to justify their participation in democratic elections in normative terms, that is, as a matter of principle rather than one of sheer expedience. It is now common for leaders in all three groups to define the peaceful alternation of power through competitive elections as the modern implementation of shura, the Islamic principle of consultation. And some leaders have even gone so far as to equate shura and democracy. In a sharp break from earlier statements depicting calls for democracy as an assault on Islam, and despite the stigma historically attached to democracy, As a secular political system rooted in the West. While the leaders of mainstream revivalist Islamist groups in all three countries support democracy as a set of procedural rules, far fewer of them are ready to endorse the full range of civil and political rights guaranteed to to citizens of democracies in the West. For example, while claiming that they support the principle of political and intellectual pluralism, In more candid moments, Islamist leaders admit that such pluralism has its limits. Pointing out that all societies restrict the scope of individual freedoms in deference to the higher values they share, leaders in the Egyptian Brotherhood, IAF, and the ICM draw the line at public speech and behaviors which they see as violating the core principles of Islam and or offending the sensibilities of the conservative majority. For example, ICM leaders in Kuwait objected last spring to the holding of public concerts in Kuwait by the Star Academy, the Lebanese version of American Idol, on the ground that such lewd displays of sexual innuendo and the improper mixing of teenage boys and girls that they encouraged threatened the religious morals and values of society. Even more consequentially, ICM leaders have invoked both the Sharia and the public interest in defending their opposition to women's right to vote and, and to run for elected office. <clears throat> As Mubarak al-Dawaila, who represented the ICM in Parliament from 1985 to 2004, explained, the extension of political rights to women would facilitate improper contact between women and unrelated men, sow marital discord, and divert women from their primary responsibilities at home likewise IAF leaders in Jordan oppose a new temporary law granting women the right of Khalil or uncontested divorce on the grounds that it would permit women to pursue their selfish desires at the expense of their families encouraging adultery and undermining the social bonds upon which the stability and order of society depend while supporting the right of women to participate in political life IAF leaders in Jordan like their counterparts in Egypt's Brotherhood insist that that such participation not lead to any violation of the ethical rules laid down by the Sharia and made binding by it. In sum, in defense of the religious character of society and the primacy of the family rather than the individual as its basic social unit, leaders of the Brotherhood, IAF and ICM reject the liberal ethos which informs the the secular legal codes of the West. The positions staked out by the leaders of revivalist Islamist groups in Egypt, Jordan, and Kuwait suggests that there remains a basic tension between prevailing conceptions of Islamic rule and the principles of pluralism and equal citizenship rights, which are central to the functioning of democracy in the West. We see the same thing in Iraq, I might add, where Shiite clerics and their supporters insist that their strong showing in the January elections gives them a mandate to establish a political system based on the historical Sharia, which, among other things, would likely grant men privileged rights in the areas of marriage, divorce, and inheritance, and might also impose religious codes of dress and behavior that are particularly restrictive for women. Of course, this places the American authorities in a difficult position. When President Bush proclaimed in his State of the Union Address this February, that our primary foreign policy goal in the Middle East and beyond is to advance the cause of freedom. What freedom was he referring to exactly? The right of the majority of citizens to select their own government, even if that government harbors an illiberal agenda? Or the right of all citizens to the individual freedoms guaranteed by secular democratic systems in the West? When, as in Iraq, there appears to be a tension between liberalism and majority rule, Which of these two aspects of democracy should we prioritize? The problem of course is that we may be left with two equally unpalatable options. Either accepting the right of a democratically elected government to limit individual rights in the name of some higher principle, in this case, fidelity to Islam as defined by those in power, or to insist on a constitution guaranteeing equal citizenship rights and thereby open ourselves to the claim that we are trying to impose our values on others. In Iraq, several conditions mitigate the danger that an Islamist group could translate an electoral victory into a popular mandate to impose Sharia rule. The sectarian divide between Shiites and Sunnis, the presence of a a substantial Kurdish bloc in parliament, the strength of secular opinion in Iraq's large cities, and the rule that a two-thirds majority in any three of the country's 18 provinces can veto the constitution may be sufficient to prevent Iraq's Shiite religious parties from imposing their version of Sharia on an ethnically, religiously, and ideologically diverse population. But in Arab states which are overwhelmingly Sunni Muslim and in which mass support for Islamist groups far exceeds that for any secular party, the risk remains that a majoritarian Islamist party could impose its version of Sharia rule at the expense of the rights of dissenting minorities whether they be secular Muslims, non-Muslims, or pious Muslims with a very different understanding of Islam. In the long run, whether or not Islamist groups can participate in a democratic system without jeopardizing its democratic character depends on how Islamist leaders interpret Islam, and in particular on the principles and policy positions they associate with God's plan for humankind. Clearly, a progressive understanding of Islam as a guiding set of general principles, justice, freedom, and equality, for example, would pose far less of a problem for modern democracy than the insistence on application of traditional Sharia rulings handed down from medieval times. Even a cursory glance at America's Declaration of Independence or of the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, reveals that religion has figured prominently in justifications for self-government in the West. As references to the inalienable rights endowed by the Creator so vividly attest. While the foundations of democracy need not be purely secular, it is clear that certain interpretations of religion are consistent with democracy and others are not. This leads us back to Islamist auto reform, and in particular to the question of whether it has gone beyond adjustments in movement strategy to encompass progressive change in the core philosophy and objectives of the Islamic movement itself. As I suggested earlier, my research demonstrates that an incipient process of democratic learning has led to fundamental change in how some Islamist leaders envision the coordinates of a modern Islamic state, and in particular in how they envision the scope and limits of pluralism and citizenship rights within it. Further, experience-driven democratic learning has fueled some new trends within the Islamist opposition bloc. For example, it has helped spur organizational moves toward greater transparency, internal democracy, and in the case of the IAF in Jordan, the participation of women in its legislative assembly. In addition, the political organizations of the Brotherhood current in each country have begun to adjust their policy agendas in ways that reflect the influence of revisionist thought. For example, leaders of the ICM in Kuwait have recently signaled a change in their position on the extension of political rights to women. After a prolonged internal debate between progressive and conservative leaders, the ICM recently announced that it would support the extension of voting rights to women while continuing to oppose their right to run for political office, a compromise which reflects ongoing dissension on this issue within the organization's ranks. But in all three countries, some leaders with a more progressive understanding of Islam have grown frustrated with the slow pace of organizational and ideological reform within the Brotherhood camp, and in Egypt and Jordan, a few of them have left their mother organizations to form new groups of their own. In Egypt, the Wasat, or Center Party, Under Formation, or Ta'asis, was created in 1996 by a group of brotherhood leaders who sought to establish a new model of Islamist praxis based, among other things, on full financial and organizational transparency, the participation of women and Coptic Christians, the articulation of a clear and detailed party program based on a particular human understanding of Islam, and a commitment to ongoing cooperation with secular opposition groups in pursuit of shared goals. Last October, the Welsett Party's third application to the government's Political Parties Committee, based on a revised and expanded platform and a list of 200 members, including 44 women and 7 cots, was rejected, just as its two previous attempts were, and, like before, it is appealing that decision in court. In Jordan, the Islamic Wasat, or Center Party, was formed in the year 2000 by a group of ex-IAF activists and independent Islamists. Compared with the IAF, Jordan's Islamic Center Party is more fully autonomous of brotherhood control, includes more women in its general committees, and is more receptive to ongoing dialogue and cooperation with secular opposition groups and NGOs, on issues of civil liberties and human rights. The ex-Brotherhood and ex-IAF leaders now active in the Egyptian and Jordanian wasat or center parties are less beholden to the conservative old guard of the revivalist movement and thus freer to innovate both in the domains of ideology and practice. But at this juncture, such parties remain marginal groups with a limited membership reducing their capacity to challenge the political dominance of the mother organizations from which they have sprung. Nevertheless, there are two ways that such parties are injecting a new dynamic into the Islamist opposition bloc. First, they have established close ties with secular opposition parties, NGOs, and intellectuals, both in their home countries and abroad. And second, together with like-minded Islamist thinkers and activists elsewhere, they have begun to identify and communicate with each other, rallying around the concept of walsaltiyah, moderation, or centrism in Islam, Muslim thinkers and activists with a shared orientation and worldview, including government officials, establishment ulama and opposition leaders, Sunnis and Shiites, and residents of Arab states, Turkey, Iran, Europe, and the United States, have begun to establish transnational networks through which new ideas are being exchanged and new personal connections are being forged. While in terms of organization, resources, and popularity, the independent Walsati current remains dwarfed by the large political organizations of the Brotherhood camp. It may achieve greater visibility and influence in the future and thereby accelerate the deepening of auto reform within the Islamic movement in the years ahead. Perhaps the main accomplishment of Islamist auto reform at this juncture is that it has contributed to the rise of a new ideological pluralism within the Islamic movement, in which traditional Islamic rulings that were once taken for granted were are now a subject of heated internal debate. That being said, the interpretation of Sharia, which prevails in the movement's leading parties and organizations, remains inconsistent with the principles of personal liberty and gender equality, which inform democratic laws in the West. This begs the question with which I began my talk, namely whether the leading nonviolent Islamist opposition groups of the Arab world can (laughs) contribute to a region-wide process of democratic reform, rather than posing an obstacle to it. So let me conclude with brief response. First, there is no way that democratic reform in the Arab world can (coughs) succeed if the region's largest, best organized, and most popular opposition groups are excluded from it. But having said that, far more thought must be given to the question of how Islamist groups might be integrated within a democratic framework. At this juncture, I would argue that the best approach falls somewhere between exclusion and inclusion, a path we might call inclusion with conditions. So what are these conditions and how might they reduce the chances for a popular but illiberal group to monopolize power? First, Islamist leaders must be encouraged to participate in national cross-partisan efforts to establish a common framework for political reform. One encouraging sign in this direction is the recent series of cross-partisan democratic reform initiatives in Egypt including the Kafaya, or Enough Movement, and another campaign in which Wall Party Islamists have joined Arab nationalists and liberal opposition actors to draft a national charter based on the principles of pluralism and democracy. Second, it is vital that Arab regimes both permit and actively encourage the strengthening of secular democratic parties so they can eventually serve as an effective counterweight to the Islamic trend. Clearly, this is a process that will take a good bit of time, and there is no guarantee that such parties will manage to cultivate broad-based mass support. In the absence of secular parties which can function as effective sites of countervailing power, democratic reform in the Arab world will likely require legal or procedural mechanisms to prevent any one group from monopolizing power. Here, some creative institutional engineering such as the deliberate construction of heterogeneous electoral districts, the devolution of power from national to subnational governments, rules which promote coalition building and compromise across partisan lines, and the granting of veto power to unelected but pro-democratic bodies, such as a constitutional court, may all be democratically legitimate ways to guarantee a modicum of pluralism in polities dominated by one ideological group. And the hope is that once the participation of Islamist actors in a democratic system becomes routine, that it will trigger a further deepening of their democratic commitments. Of course, this entire discussion of how Islamists might contribute to a region-wide process of democratic reform remains a hypothetical one, so long as the region's authoritarian leaders refuse to release their grip on power. But in principle, at least, the combination of a sustained process of national dialogue and reconciliation together with some institutional engineering which prevents any one group from monopolizing power and at the same time fosters cross-partisan cooperation and trust, might one day lay the groundwork for the successful integration of Islamists within new and fragile democracies in the Arab Middle East. So those are my initial comments.
3: But more specifically about, essentially, the First Amendment, freedom of speech, not about elections and participation since being able to vote. Would uh, these Islamist, Islamist parties basically accept the idea that women or anybody can say anything they want and organize they want, even if they can't vote, for example? That would be like the 19th century. That,
2: that's, a cru- that's a crucial question, and they prevaricate. They're not clear on that mm-hmm. issue. On the one hand, if you look at rhetorical statements, they constantly emphasize that they support the principle of pluralism, meaning you know ideological, political, intellectual pluralism. Well, pluralism in the sense of permitting the expression of ideas which descend from their own. But when you push them on this issue, they admit that I could say such pluralism or such uh, tolerance of dissenting viewpoints has its limits. And my sense is that they would... Uh, permit freedom of expression within certain boundaries, that is, as long as certain core principles of society are not violated, such as, uh, you know, speech that was offensive to Islam, for example. And one interesting distinction that was made by some Islamist leaders on this very point is what you want to say in a private conversation with a friend is your business. Well, you even want to say in a small university uh, seminar with 10 students in it, it's more or less your business. But once you start going out into the public sphere and begin agitating and making your views known, then, as they would say, we have to balance um, freedom of expression with concern for the sensibilities of the majority, you know, respect for the majority, and with concern for the public order. They would be against hate speech. They would also be against, for example, groups that actively uh, actively um, advocated a homosexual lifestyle, for example. Uh, this is what one... or would restrict or, their
3: speech. It's not that obviously they'd be opposed to they would restrict their
2: speech. They would restrict their speech once it reached the public domain. That is my sense. But I have to be very honest with you on this, and, and you should be clear on this. They tend to avoid addressing these controversial issues in their general statements, and you have to push them and push them to get them to actually admit that they would place limits on freedom of expression. But that is, in fact, uh, what we could expect them to do. In defense of both Islam and the values of the majority. And the way they would phrase it is attempting to achieve a balance between the two. Um, Just
3: a comment and a question. I guess the comment, very quickly, is that you refer to liberal rights, in a sense, as an aspect of democracy, and, and, I mean, if you think about the 19th century experience in the West, many uh, liberals were opposed to democracy, and there's a a real tension there, and so in that sense, um, the way it's anachronistic to sort of say that this is all one, all the things go together, in fact, they don't necessarily, and so in a sense, what's happening in the Islamic context is that these groups may may want democracy, but not a liberal version. That's right. that's just the
2: the question is, um, And th- that's exactly what they would say. They uh, say okay. like we want democracy, but we want an Islamist, we want our own version of democracy, okay. which will not entail respect for the same types of rights based on, in our view, on excessive individualism that you have in the West. Right. But in
3: a sense, that's mm-hmm. not necessarily a defective conception of democracy, right? it looks like that from an American standpoint today, in the 21st century, the 19th century, that would have might have seemed perfectly appropriate. But so that's an editorial comment.
2: I can respond to that, but I'll let you go ahead. Okay. Go, go ahead.
3: The is, I guess you, say I mean, the issue of auto is very you didn't
0: really
3: talk
2: about the cause yeah. I have to say, I have to, you're precisely right, and I realized as, as I was giving this talk with horror that I left out a section of it. Uh, so okay. there is a co- couple pages, and I apologize profusely for that, that should have been in here. And, I mean, I, I've been giving t- so many talks recently that I've gotten a little dis- disorganized. There is a section on the causes, and I would be happy to discuss them. Well,
3: I would like to hear a little bit about that, but I guess in particular I'm wondering what evidence is there for an instrumental shift versus a more normative shift, and, and what would count as evidence one way or the other? How are you getting at that empirically?
2: The, the sort of the, the crucial... Uh, the the, the most difficult issue that I'm grappling with now is actually, you know, what uh, external evidence could there be of a normative shift? And and I will address that. Let me just begin with this issue of could we conceive of an Islamist democracy not as a defective or deficient democracy, but simply as an alternative form of democracy? My own answer to that would be no, we cannot consider it to be a full democracy because my sense is in terms of its 21st century definition that democracy entails both majority rule and constitutional protection of the rights of minorities. And unless both of those principles are both, uh, you know, in place de jure and in in practice, then I don't think that we can consider uh, a government to be democratic, even if it is a government elected by a majority of the population. But that's that's a a question of semantics of whether or not we can consider these, um, you know, a, a popularly elected Islamist government democratic if it infringes on the rights of of uh, minority groups. And, or I would, you know, you know my, my sense is no. okay. Um, but the Islamist leaders themselves would be very sympathetic to your line of reasoning because they would say that we need to be able to separate out the procedural, mecha- de- democracy is a set of procedural mechanisms and norms, which we fully support, they say, with the, you know, um, individualist ethos which informs your legal codes and reflects your culture and your values and doesn't reflect ours. And so they say, we want to build a, de- a democracy that is respectful of the procedural mechanisms that is built upon our own values and culture. I see a problem with that, you might not see a problem. No, with I, I, I'm
3: with you on this. I guess just the, the definition of democracy you're using as very much an American definition
2: of a Western definition, I guess. My de- I, I am, I am democracy as liberal democracy, you know, which, which is certainly the result of historical development in the West. Fair enough. The issue of causation, and here this is the part that I I feel very badly that I did not include, but I want to talk about what I see as the sort of causal mechanisms behind um, (coughs) what I call the deepening of Islamist auto reform, by which I mean the progression from changes in strategy to changes in end goals. And what I have found in my research is the the signs of an incipient that is beginning process of this deepening of Islamist utter reform for some Islamist leaders, but certainly not for all of them. And this begs the question, well, what then is, you know, uh, triggering this change in uh, their understanding of the end goals of Islamic the Islamic movement itself? And what I found is that strategically driven participation in the formal political system can, over time, trigger a process of democratic learning. <laughs> involving change in Islamist leaders' core values and beliefs. So participation that is initially driven by instrumental considerations can, once set in motion, and once that participation becomes routine, actually have an impact on the goals of Islamic leaders themselves. And then I go on to, this again was in the part I should have included, I go on to say that some types of participation are more likely to trigger democratic learning than others. And I'm still, you know, sort of working through the argument, but one particularly important type of participation is cross-partisan cooperation between Islamists and secular groups in pursuit of democratic reform. That I, you know, through my uh, you know interviews with middle-generation Islamist leaders who have spent years in the professional associations as elected officials, some of them have also spent time in parliament, some of them have worked closely with secular NGOs and human rights groups, they have expressed to me that their views on women's rights, on pluralism, on relations with the West, have been profoundly altered by that experience of of cooperation. So what that suggests is that (coughs) the participation of Islamists in the formal political system by itself is not sufficient to trigger a revision of their end goals. You have to look at the types of participation that, that are involved. And in particular, whether or not Islamists have both the incentive and the opportunity to break out of the insular networks of their own movement's politics and reach out and engage in sustained cooperation with other groups. That I found to be one of the key triggers of democratic learning. Now, the issue of evidence. Critics of the Islamic movement, both in the Arab world and in the West, say that all of this moderation is a form of rhetorical posturing, and that these are in fact wolves in lamb's clothing, and that we can't trust them as far as we can throw them. That it's all excuse my language BS. That you know none of this carry has you know has any real uh, weight and does not reflect any genuine change in their views. And There's actually a term for the uh, the term. Uh, the, they are uh, they are accused of in arabic they're accused of uh which means dissimulation they're accused of hiding their true uh motive, motivations and intentions and so this all of this moderating language is seen as a political ploy to dampen uh criticism of the movement. Uh, and you know, facilitate their ultimate ascent to power through the electoral process. In Tunisia, for example, one of the most progressive Islamist uh, thinkers in the Nahda movement in the 80s and 90s, his name was Abdel Fattah and he was an Islamist but also an outspoken advocate of women's rights and pluralism, was referred to in the Tunisian state-controlled uh, press as Mr. Valium. So he was just, you know, uh, know, you're going to intoxicate everyone. Oh, okay, uh, the Islamists are fine and, you know, they like pluralism, they like women. We'll let them come to, Uh uh-oh, they're in power and now they're, you know, imposing a theocratic, you know, system upon us. So that's the typical response. And, uh, for example, some of you might know the name Nawal Sadawi, one of the major um, women's rights uh, activists in the Arab world. She's an (laughs) Egyptian secular radical feminist. And I asked her uh, two years ago, are you encouraged by the new emphasis on women's rights in the platforms of such groups as the Egyptian Wassup Party. Because it's, you know, very... Um, there are women in their executive board, their, uh, you know, their 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 discourse is, is very different from traditional Islamist positions of women. And her answer was, and she, uh, this is exactly what she did, no, because I am not deceived by them. So I guess the answer is no. <laughs> You're not encouraged by these developments. You know, clear answer. When you ask the... Uh, these, leaders, you know, is this a sincere, does this reflect a sincere change of heart? They say, yes, it does. And they say, what, you know, but they said that we will not be able to persuade our critics. We can stand on our head and, you know, we can, we can it's not going to, to, to convince them no matter what we say. You know, t- the perception is talk is cheap, right? So in a way this raises the issue of credible commitments. How do you know when someone says that they are going to respect the rights of others once they come to power that they're actually going to honor that commitment? And the simple answer is we won't know until, unless and until they come to power and see if, in fact, their actions <laughs> conform to their uh, stated uh, objectives. That's, that's, sort of, that, that's too easy an answer, but that's the first answer. The second thing is uh, I would say there, there are several ways that we can look for evidence of actual democratic learning as opposed to simply strategic posturing. One is consistency. Is what the Islamists are saying within their own you know, group meetings – consistent with what they're saying to, you know, a Western human rights activist, okay, you know, and so to look for sort of rhetorical consistency. A second issue is consistency between rhetoric and action. If an Islamist says, oh, yes, we support women's participation in politics, but there are no women at all in their own organization, that would suggest that there is a potential problem there, right? So that would be a second thing. Uh, and third, you know, my, it is, this is my own view that one has to, at some level, take at face value what people say as their genuine beliefs and objectives. I mean, since we, I mean, and so I, oh, okay, so that's, you know, another thing that I, I am more inclined when Abul El Amadi, the head of the Wassup Party, says that, uh, you know, 20 years ago, I used to think that all public space should be gender segregated. I refused to talk to a foreigner. I refused to shake hands with a woman. And he said, as a result of my travels abroad, as a result of my interactions with Coptic Christians, with Western Christians and Jews in uh, relief efforts in Bosnia, uh, I have developed a much more differentiated understanding of the West. My views of women has, have dramatically changed. Uh, and he said, and as proof of that, we now have women, including unveiled women, in our party. I'm inclined to, you know, give some of the, of the doubt, you know, to those statements. Uh, d- and th- the last point I would make is to look for is there a strategic advantage to this type of posturing. And what's interesting is that there is an advantage in the terms of allaying the fears of secular uh, groups, but there's also a cost. Because when uh, Islamists take on, let's say, a more progressive position on women's rights, they're getting accusations from conservatives that they had betrayed Islam. So you could argue that the higher the cost relative to the and this is sort of a strategic viewpoint, but if the costs are higher than the benefits, that that would add further credence to the idea that some form of democratic learning has occurred. All of that is to say, I'm grappling with this, and you know, if you, <laughs> I don't, I, I don't, I'm not even sure yet if that's a fully adequate approach, but I'll tell you something. Um, there's a guy named Quinn Meacham, young scholar who's now, at, has a postdoc at Harvard, who's working on this very issue with respect to Turkey and Egypt, two very different cases. And he, we had a long discussion about this in March, and he said, because you can't prove democratic learning, I just, I'm taking it off the books, and I'm going to look at this phenomenon of moderation strictly from a strategic perspective and try to explain it strictly from a rational actor strategic perspective. And to me, those are two separate issues, you know, simply because it's hard to, to empirically handle and prove, does that mean that it's not a plausible part of the explanation? I, I would disagree with him on this. I think it's a crucial part of the explanation, particularly if we give credence to what is, these Islamist leaders themselves say about the change in their own views. When someone says that my views have been transformed as a result of, and, and very concretely, these experiences, are they believable? Well, it depends on, in some level, your understanding of human nature. Are people open to, ch- ch- to change, to transformation? Uh, in my sense, again, perhaps this, this is sort of unproven, but that that is possible. And let me just tell you one very interesting um, uh, anecdote Abel El Amadi told me. He said, when I go to, to London, he goes, I go to Europe all the time. I meet with Islamist leaders. I also meet with Christian NGOs, I engage in interfaith dialogue, I meet with British government officials, I meet with Jewish groups, I meet with everybody and we debate and we discuss. We might disagree, but we have these discussions. He said when leaders of the Egyptian Brotherhood come to the UK, they're met at the airport by a member of the UK's branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. They're whisked away in a private car in which they are surrounded by other members of the Muslim Brotherhood to the home of a member of the Muslim Brotherhood and he says they spend their entire visit to the U.K. with other members of the Muslim Brotherhood trend. And he said, he said it's as if they never left Egypt. Right? I mean, the, the, you know, there's more greenery around them, but other than that, <laughs> there's been no interaction, no dialogue, no sustained engagement with other groups. And he said to me, this, this was his explanation for why his views have, as he would put it, matured or evolved where those of Brotherhood leaders have not.
0: In your interviews, did you also give people whose exposure to the democratic process cause them to learn in the other direction? Say, I'm appalled by (laughs) this whole process, and I want no part of it, and uh, uh, how how do we know the learning goes in one direction
2: and not another? That's a very good question. I mean, learning is open-ended. You can learn an infinite number of lessons from the same set of experiences. And my research is focused specifically on those who are learning whose learning entails greater support for democracy. So I'm looking specifically at that group, okay? And at what I am finding is that, you know, this certain ge- group of middle-generation leaders with similar sets of experiences are, in fact, uh, you know, this process is, in fact, occurring for all of them. This sort of democratic learning is going on. Now, can one, can one you know, reach a different set of conclusions from participating in the system? Of course one can. Um, what I have found is not so much anti-democratic learning per se, but rather there are those who want to hold on to the group's core objectives and historic mission, who are purists, who only want to cooperate with other groups in the sense of coordinating with them toward goals that, that benefit everybody, but without letting go of or abandoning their core uh, principles, sort of. You know, I, I know in the, the literature on the Green Party for the, 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 the fundo fundes versus realos, If you know that, you know, right? The fundamentalists versus the realists. Sort of, so there are some who would say, but no, actually, this is not really not really a, a useful comparison because these actually the ones I'm talking about here are actually quite pragmatic. They say, we'll, we'll join with secular opposition groups when it serves our group interests," but we're, but for them, participation is not triggering a change or as as much of a change and end goals as it is for those who have engaged in democratic learning. And that, of course, begs the question of why does any one Islamist experience, you know, uh, uh, undergo democratic learning from, you know, participating in the system where others don't? And I don't really have a clear sort of systemic answer to that question. Uh, And it's actually very difficult when you go into the field to label people. You know, uh, is this person a progressive? Is this person a traditionalist? Because most people fall somewhere along in between on that spectrum. You know, people don't, in practice, actually fall into neat categories. And, in fact, much of the the literature on Islamist groups, if they make any distinctions between groups within the movement, tend to divide the group into two groups, hardliners and softliners, reformists and, uh, you know, literalists. And that is grossly inadequate. You know, that, those sort of, you know, dichotomous categories to all of the various um, you know variations inside it.
0: I wonder if you might have to adjust your causal story slightly if you looked at non-violent groups, or sorry, violent groups, or maybe those groups who uh, passively support or would legitimize the use of violence against government authorities. Um, the reason I ask is because there might be something about that decision of whether you use force or not that might also correlate with the propensity to learn through the democratic process. Um, so I guess could you speak or comment on the possibility of kind of a spiritual relationship there because of the decision to use force or not? And um, maybe if you have any ideas of why some decide to use force and some don't.
2: Those are all very interesting and important questions, but that, that, that I would say clearly fall outside outside the domain of this project. I am looking specifically at mainstream nonviolent Islamist groups that have you know, renounced the use of violence from the outset, and I'm interested in groups that are committed to a nonviolent strategy of reform, but are committed to a anti-democratic or non-democratic system transformation. So under what conditions does participating in the system lead them to either abandon or revise their ultimate goals in ways that in permit their accommodation into a democratic system. Now, this, this question of why do some groups choose violence and other groups don't, I think that you can look both at sort of political opportunity structures and ideology. You know, There, there are multiple factors that converge to explain those strategy choices. Uh, but there is one interesting development that sort of parallels the development that, that I am studying here, which sort of relates to your question, which is that there has recently been in Egypt, in particular, several militant Islamist leaders who have publicly renounced violence, sort of have decided that jihad is no longer appropriate at this you know point in time, and uh, now not co- not coincidentally, perhaps made these decisions in prison, uh, you know, under the threat of torture, but. Uh, you know, on, the, on the basis of these statements, thousands of former militants, ex-militants, have been released into Egyptian society, and some of them are forming their own parties and seeking to run for in, in, in democratic elections. Now, for them, the ideological bar to learning is much higher. You know, my expectation would be that the, you know, such groups, basically, you know, the, their, the end goal they have in mind is a far more illiberal, rigid, literalist, uh, a system based on a far more rigid, literalist interpretation of sharia, so closer to, let's say, Taliban rule or the Saudi regime than, than, you know, more sort of modernist versions of Islam. And this raises an interesting interesting question. Is the way the ideological bar there too high to permit democratic learning? Um, My sense is that what you're going to find is... If learning occurs, it's going to involve support for the procedural dimensions of democracy, but far less so, uh, you know, an, an accommodation to ideas of basic civil, and pl- democratic civil and political rights, because it's just, it's just too far away from their original sort of ideologies.
3: and representation constraint on them. And, and what, so for him, it seemed one of the, the, the causal links for, towards democratic learning was was a very strong economic element that, that uh, he, he talked about sort of uh, Islamic networks becoming business networks and that sort of helping bring in more pluralism and secularism. What, that didn't seem to be part
2: of your story. It's not as mu- very much not as much a part of my story. I think that that explanation... Is very significant for Turkey, but resonates much more for the Turkish case than for the Arab cases, because the bourgeoisie is much more advanced. It's larger. It's more developed. It's more politically powerful as a you know social class in Turkey than in any Arab state. Uh, business classes do play a role in politics, in let's say Kuwait, for example, where they do have the, you know, sort of have their own sort of political bloc. But in general, I mean, th- this is one aspect of the d- phenomenon that in a way might, that is under addressed in this project is the economic dimension. You know, for example, the economic networks of Islamists and in what ways did that either tie them to the regime or, uh, you know, help to, to further their opposition to the regime. That is sort of an aspect that I don't really look at as much. But I will say that the main social base for the groups that I'm interested in is not the business class. It is the professional class, which is different you know, lawyers, doctors, engineers, scientists, pharmacists, um, teachers, rather than, you know, investors, you know, capitalists, you know, property owners. Uh, the the bourgeoisie uh, in these countries tends to be regime-supporting, you know, by and large, uh, and, you know, benefits from generous contracts from the state, and is much less Independent of the state, than you see in Turkey, which has a much more mature bourgeoisie. Some people say that Turkey is actually a Latin American country that just happens to be located in <laughs> Southwest Asia.
1: But if you look at
2: you know its history, you look at its evolution. It is it is has a far more diversified economy, uh, you know, far more organization along class lines. So all of those issues play out differently in Turkey, that I would say, than in the Arab world. You
0: know, along the same line should Turkey be an example for this other reform, the Islamist other reform, and uh, why are we looking for answers in someplace else when there is this Islamist uh, country which has gone through this other reform that you're talking about, and are where Turkey is right now, is it considered a democratic uh, country, or uh, should that be an intermediate their model for the, the Islamist uh, countries, or what are your views on
2: that? Well, those are very important questions for my project, and I'm going to eventually, and not yet, but I am going to include Turkey as an external comparison case. And I, you know, I, I emphasize external comparison because it is very different than the Arab cases in multiple ways. One uh, is that it is a secular constitutional system, and in that there is no Arab state that comes close. Uh, in, in that respect of, of you know truly separating religion and politics. Number two, it is a democratic system by and large, though there are some caveats there, including a you know series, a history punctuated by military interventions, which you know ca- raises some questions about the, the sort of the, the the extent of democratic consolidation. Nevertheless, this, in, in comparison to the Arab states, Turkey is a thousand times. Uh, more democratic uh, in terms of leaders actually being um, subject to to, electoral vote and being able to be voted out of power. And third, in Turkey, the military plays a crucial role as the guardian of the secular constitutional order. And uh, the, uh, the chief of staff, I think his name is Oskuk, is that right? Does anyone know? I think that's right has, you know, on numerous occasions warned the elected leadership of the country not to cross certain red lines. That is, if, you know, the uh, Islamists in Turkey wanted to, let's say, establish some sort of, you know, family code based on Sharia, they know they cannot get away with it. Their predecessors have been banned, uh, arrested for less, for reciting a poem, in one case, that appeared to be questioning the, you know, Kamalist legacy. So the, the military plays the crucial role as the defender of or the guardian of the secular democratic order. And I would say that that has created a whole set of different incentives and, and constraints for Islamist groups than we see in the Arab world. And actually incentives and constraints that are much more favorable to the democratic evolution of Islamist groups than we see in the Arab world. So. Turkey is important as sort of a as the high point of Islamist moderation or of auto reform to put it differently um, but I am also reluctant to simply assume that the developments that we see in Turkey can be easily transplanted that you know that the, the lessons can be are easily exportable because the conditions are in fact so different another very important um, Trigger for uh, this auto reform process in Turkey, of course, is the e, the bid for EU membership, and that has you know given very uh, an, an important external uh, set of pressures on all members of the Turkish polity, including the military and including the Islamists, to bone up their democratic credentials because of this huge dangling carrot that awaits them if they are you know able to do so to the EU satisfaction. There is nothing comparable to either. Uh, a secular constitutional system a uh, extra democratic uh, force in this case the military to back it up or that external um, incentive that, that that are at work in the Arab world today so is there a hope? <laughs> less I mean again I, I I'm I don't want to be overly optimistic and say, oh, yes, you know what's happened in Turkey, we can see happening in the Arab world any time now. I don't think that's the case. Um, yes, of course, it's always grounds for hope, right? Uh, you know, what, what I think would make the most sense in terms of facilitating the democratic integration of Islamist groups in the Arab world is a gradual process of political opening and political inclusion. I mean, one place to start, for example, might be to include the Walsat Party party. Uh, parties in Egypt and Jordan, which is a you know a, a choice that the governments of those countries have well actually in Jordan the Wasu Party is a legal party, and in Egypt it is not. And what and what's interesting about this is you might think, well why are Islamist parties legal why is, is there a legal Islamist party in Jordan? Why are no parties legal in, in Kuwait but the Islamists have the same rights as any other group? And why are there legal parties in Egypt but no Islamist no legal Islamist party? And there are you know, historical reasons and, and also uh, strategic reasons for that, uh, those discrepancies. But let me just make one important um, distinction between Jordan and Kuwait on the one hand and Egypt on the other. Jordan and Kuwait are cases of relative accommodation of Islamist groups into the political system. They have ma- basically the same rights as everybody else. A little bit more harassment and intimidation, but in general... They have their own organizations. They run openly for elections on their own um, on their own lists. And what's interesting about those, I mean, there, there are many reasons for this, but one important one is the presence of countervailing blocks in parliament itself to the Islamists, not secular democrats, but tribal groups that tend to be pro-regime. And this places structural limits on how much the Islamists are able, how much representation the Islamists are able to gain in Parliament. They can never really cross a 50% threshold. In Egypt, you don't have comparable, you know, the comparable political organization or expression of tribal ties. And in Egypt, there's the perception by the regime that it really comes down to two credible forces in that, that could really compete for power. The, the regime and the Muslim Brotherhood, the Islamist opposition. So therefore, there's far you know, more reluctance in Egypt to allow the Brotherhood a wedge. One way to overcome or at least minimize the perceived threat posed by Islamist groups is, of course, to strengthen secular democratic parties so that there can be you know, more counterweights to the Islamists. But so far, secular democratic parties remain very weak, underdeveloped. They lack a mass base. This raises all kinds of questions as to why that's the case and, and whether this can be overcome in the future. But for the time being, in terms of ideological or programmatic alternatives to the regime, there remain, there is one <coughs> force in Arab societies that can effectively compete with the regime, and that is the Islamist opposition. If
0: I have a question. I have, understand better your policy advice here. I, I sense you're very worried about Uh, The lack of democracy in the Middle East, and yet you seem concerned about promoting it for fear the wrong guys will win or people who are illiberal will win. I don't remember the same kind of American concern about transition in Poland or transition Mm -hmm. in most any other place, Latin America. We didn't (coughs) sort of engineer the field before we proposed and promoted the process. And I think we had some confidence there that the lay of the land today and even tomorrow would look different six or ten years out. So while you're so confident, it seems to me, that the Muslim Brothers will win in the short run, I'm not sure six years from now that they would have that same Mm kind of popular uh, status if, in fact, they'd been in power and so on and so on, other oppositions might as long as there was a commitment to process. And so I'm wondering where you come down on this balance. I mean, I think one reason Lhasa and some of those, your idea of bringing them in, it will be seen like America laying the field, mm-hmm. allowing democracy only for those Islamists who are tame, uh, and keeping the authentic Islamists out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because much of this is about pushing uh, a sort of a sense of independence and dignity mm-hmm. between the West. And the, and the mantle of that is very clearly on the Quran and in mm-hmm. those groups. Mm-hmm. And you know, to ignore the net, well, I'll call it the national sense of this whole process strikes me as terribly apolitical. Sure, they'll win. So like I have several questions. How can we, how can we as America, particularly with our history there, be an effective force for political change when we're trying to essentially engineer, assess, the, engineer the field, yeah. so that only groups we're comfortable with, with can win mm-hmm. in the short run, mm-hmm. and not have any confidence in the long run? As the case, let's uh, say, uh, in Iran or anywhere else, the Muslim uh, fundamentals have been in power; they're not popular for very long.
2: So are you, looking at, are you looking at Iran as a democratic success story? Because I certainly would not look at it as such.
0: No, I'm looking at it as a story where uh, popular Islam has lost its mass base.
2: But it's still in power.
0: Well, it, doesn't, it, didn't, it didn't pertain to the procedures. Although it has elections, and the president's, uh, the last one at least, was elected against the will of the Supreme Council. So, I mean, so at least at the presidential level, certainly more democratic than any Arab state.
2: Yeah. Though, again, I wouldn't. I would. I don't look to Iran as, as a model that anyone would you know want to follow. Um, though that's true. It's certainly there, there's well,
0: my point there is. I think there's a that, what's in power?
2: that they lose People popularity. Popular right. Time. Uh, that, I I completely see that and certainly endorse you know that perspective. Let me begin with the first portion, which is you know we didn't try to engineer the. Uh, outcome of democratic transitions in Latin America, for example, but rather just um, insisted on, on, you know, clean process. Remember that the radical groups in Latin American societies had been decimated by military dictatorships before the point of democratic transition occurred. So Mm -hmm. it, it, it it would be as if you had powerful radical socialist parties poised to win uh, a majority of seats in Parliament at the time of a democratic transition in Latin America. That was not the case. Uh, And In fact, you had both strong uh, center-right parties and de-radicalized socialists, that is, socialists who had become social democrats uh, in place. So I would say that the risks of a popular but illiberal or anti-democratic party assuming power through through the democratic process were much lower in Latin America at the time that the transitions took place, than they are in the Arab world today. Now, having said that, so I don't I don't think that it's that, uh, it's a fair analogy. Having said that, I agree with you that it's awkward, if not you know, if not uh, counterproductive, to try to engineer the outcome of, of the democratic process in the Arab world. And you're certainly right that any perception that we are trying to do that will trigger a nationalist defensive reaction along the lines of who are you to tell us, you know, um, you know who are you to intervene in our, our local affairs. So I agree with you on that point. I think, and, and I think that, uh, you know, and if I, if I suggest it otherwise, I, I certainly then um, want, want to clarify this. I think we have to be very much committed to the principle of allowing <coughs> groups. In the, I mean, it's, it's not our decision what kind of a governments end up there. It's the decision of those of the people in the region. Uh, so that's something that a principle of sort of self-determination that we have to be very clear on respecting. So I would that's that's number my number one point. Number the second point though is that as far as the Muslim Brotherhood and groups like that, I would not say you know uh, we should not go on record saying the Muslim Brotherhood isn't allowed to participate because it is not sufficiently democratic in its orientations. No, what I would say is you know we are going to go on record as saying in principle. We support the right of all political parties to take part in the system, to run for office, as long as they are respectful of basic pluralism, you know, the rights of uh, indi- you know, individual rights, and this applies to all groups: government, you know, the rul- current ruling parties, secular socialist parties, Islamist parties, etc. So we can be consistent, I think, uh, and, af- and, and effective in saying that we advocate or endorse the rights of all groups to take part in the political process as long as they themselves are respectful of basic democratic values. And I think that in a, in a way positions us on uh, some moral high ground to challenge some of the illiberal or non-democratic aspects of the Islamists' agendas. Having said that, if a group within a liberal agenda comes to power through free, clean, fair elections, I agree with you that we don't really have much choice but to stand back and, and uh, honor the results. So.
1: Uh, it's one thirty. I think we better stop there. Uh,
0: Karen, thank you very much.
1: We've had, we've, had we've had an opportunity to hear this presentation of research in media race. Uh, it'll be very nice if we can get you to come back when the research is finished and you can give us the kind of overall analysis uh, (laughs) that you are just working for now. The second thing is, I really thought it was terrific when she did an Egyptian accent. Uh, (laughs) And I wonder if you might polish that up also. Uh,